Food Talk with Mike Holomeco is brought to you by Cento at CentoFineFoods.com, King Arthur Flower at KingArthurFlower.com, and Colavita at Colavita.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Hey folks, welcome. Michael Michael's Food Talk been off for a couple of weeks. Great to be back. A couple of minutes late today if you're actually tuning in live. Sorry about that. <clears throat> but I think most of you are probably listening on podcasts or Stitcher. Heritage Radio Network is great that way. You can listen to us anytime, anywhere you want on your handheld. That is the new media, isn't it? <clears throat> Happy New Year. I wished you that a couple of weeks ago, I think. Um, yeah, I'm late. It's blizzard in New York this past week. Well, sort of a pseudo-blizzard. New York freaks out when it snows, but the subways aren't – still they aren't quite running right. So a couple minutes late, but we're here. Great show lined up today. We're going to have a quick talk with um, a cause that's pretty near and dear to me, New York City Rescue Mission. Craig Mize, the new executive director. Um, it's New York's oldest rescue mission, New York's oldest mission. Been around since the late 1800s with one cause in mind, which is to get – People that are down and out on the streets who have uh, lost any chance of luck, don't have any support to get them cleaned up, get them back on their feet again, get them some skills and get them out. Um, I've done a lot of work with them over the years, and this is a particularly interesting time of year because it's cold. Uh, it's really cold. So if you've lived anywhere in the Northeast, we've had those Arctic, whatever they're called, Arctic blasts or something that have brought the temperatures down into the single digits at night and not much into the low 20s by day. Tough to be out on the street. New York City Rescue helps people that are in those situations, families, men, women. It's actually a bigger mix than you'd think. Kids that are... As my kid's age, I've seen when I volunteered there, so we're going to have Craig on the phone in a couple of minutes. We have Craig on the phone yet? Sorry, we do. Um, yes. Actually, let's go. Craig, how are you? Well, Mike, I'm doing really well, and that was a great summary of the great work we've been doing for 142 years. And uh, if you could see our place today, it is literally standing room only. We have opened up our doors, and any, any place we can put a chair, we've got people in here trying to stay warm, because it's truly life-threatening out there today. Yeah, I mean, it's... <laughs> You know, those of us that have safe houses, those of us that have places to go, those of us that have heat in our apartments, it's, it's bad enough to be out in the street in between walking from the subway to your apartment. Uh, the streets are quiet. I know I was out last night and had a more ambitious agenda that I kind of curtailed. After walking into a headwind for 10 minutes, I said, what am I doing? <laughs> this is one of those nights, just stay home and watch some reruns. What are you doing, kid? Uh, yeah, and, you know, the economic times are tough. You know, I first worked with you all, just to, by way of background. You're new to, relatively new as the executive director. Uh, back in the day, I had a, a job at WOR, really iconic, great New York radio station, one of the last of the great independents. And uh, we were coming into one winter, and we wanted to do some outreach. And, and I sat down with the, the then GM, Bob Bruno, and I thought, you know, there's this great place called the New York City Rescue. Why don't we do like a one-week uh, fundraiser for them? We'll call it the Super Bowl, spelled S-O-U-P, um, that would culminate in chefs going down. I think I was there the first year. A lot of big-name chefs have been involved where they donated a recipe for soup or came in and made soup or did whatever the above, and we had a call-in to raise funds for you guys, which was a pretty successful yeah. endeavor. Um, yeah. WOR has since 
bought by Clear Channel. They've gone another direction. But so you and I are going to talk a little bit about that today. If you can, we're not so. This isn't such a fundraising radio network that way. But if people are listening to this and like the story, how does one contribute to the New York City Rescue? Where do they go? Is there a website? Uh, yeah, probably the easiest way is uh, nycrescue.org, and when you come to our homepage, you'll see lots of opportunities to click a button that will give take you to a giving page. So, nycrescue.org, easy to remember that. If you're listening yep. out there anywhere in America, it's great. So tell us the story. Uh, this is a relatively new audience for me. Tell us a little bit about the history of New York City Rescue, because it's pretty epic. I mean, 145 years of doing what? Yep, yep. Well, actually, in, in your intro, you said uh, New York's first uh, mission, but we're actually America's first, uh, and actually started a movement that spread to the East Coast and in the Midwest and all the way to California. There are now over 300 missions like us that can trace their heritage all the way back to 1872 here in New York City with this mission. And initially, it focused on just getting men overnight shelter, food, trying to trying to clean them up, and as you said in your intro, give them a new start. But over the years, we've expanded to both care for immediate needs and emergency situations, uh, but we also have men that this becomes their home for a year, and they're in recovery, dealing with addictions, uh, alcoholic, uh, chemical dependency, all kinds of uh, problems that are that are causing the homelessness, and we try to address those. And we're successful when they graduate, they get a job, they have independent living, and we're just completing a, an expansion of three floors that will double our numbers. And so we'll every night have 250 people living in this building um, and hopefully experiencing hope and life change. And to put a face on this, so I have volunteered a couple of times for Thanksgiving because you do a great Thanksgiving meal where you bus people from shelters all around the city. Yep. It's all day long, from yeah. 10 in the morning till 9 o'clock at night. Yep. Uh, in between, we would clean the dining room. We would bus the tables. When the new guests sat down, we would bring out the food. We would uh, you know, pour beverages, all that sort of stuff. And you know, to put a face on homelessness in New York, we're not just looking at scruffy guys that probably drank no, too much. No. There are homeless families who were there out of happenstance. There's yep. mothers that don't mothers with children who, who don't have husbands who have just been sort of pushed into homelessness because of the cost of living in this town. I, I saw kids in their early 20s, looked like college yep. kids. I mean, yep. homelessness, the face of homelessness in New York is pretty broad, broadly it's, stretched across the spectrum. Yeah, it's almost as diverse as the city. Yeah. Um, you just summarized it. Um, there's no one reason why someone becomes homeless it's very easy to stereotype them and just kind of say well you made bad choices you found yourself in the street so we had we have a man right now that was elderly that was uh, struggling to make ends meet upper east side he got hit by a car badly injured uh came out uh needing lots of help medical help and eventually found himself homeless and it's hard to think that we don't have a safety net to catch people like that but it really happens and so you know we're a place of compassion, and and I want to say, and you, you know, you're the week that you guys we launched this Super Bowl thing. It was a fabulous idea, because part of what we're also trying to communicate is that you know you think a soup kitchen, you think kind of a dirty, dingy, you know, not very good service. We're actually have raised the bar to say we're going to do the very best for the least of our community, and really make it a fantastic week. And I I, I want to tell you about what we got lined up for a Super Bowl week. It's going to be amazing. Tell talk, please. Well. Uh, you remember you started all this, and uh, we really appreciate it. So we have uh, right now four nights filled with. Uh, uh, I think Wednesday night we have Chef Dino Gatto of Raos, who's a, uh, a chef, one of the best chefs in the city. He's going to come here and he's going to serve up a special recipe. We have uh, Chef on Tuesday from Tasting Table, uh, Brendan McHale, and on Monday we have Chef Vito Marcello, and Thursday the International Culinary Center is going to come. So these are four nights where we're going to go beyond a bowl of soup for the Super Bowl. This is going to be a, a great 
a meal that we're going to put on for our guest, and then Super Bowl Sunday itself. And I, this is my second Super Bowl as the director, and we're throwing a huge party here for the homeless. So we're going to have three screens, video projection with the game, and a buffet of food, and we're just going to have a great party for the homeless of our city. And actually, it's not just for the homeless. Anyone wants to come down to 90 Lafayette Street, you're welcome to join us. Yo, that was the other question. We had, when we started this at WOR, we were trying to keep it. WOR, it was a downtown station. For years, it had right. been uptown, been Times Square. But by the time I came along, it was at 111 Broadway, which is Wall Street was my stop. And we are trying to find something downtown that spoke to us. And I thought, you guys just do such amazing work. Um, and I can also attest, you know, I've been to some of the graduations you've had where – you know, you've had people, yeah. guys, girls that were, I mean, as you just talked about alcohol and addiction, this is stuff in America that just gets swept under the rug. There is no treatment for it. All we do is either lock these people up or watch them sink right. to, to the bottom. Uh, insurance doesn't pay for it. If you don't come from a family of means, you're pretty much dead right. in the water. Uh, it's, 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 anyway, it's hard enough to get out of that web, and, yep. and it's really touching to see the men and women get up on stage for graduation talk about what they've been through, about what you guys have done, how you touch them, turn their lives around, and you know, really get, giving them a second chance that for many of these people, they would have never had that opportunity. Yeah, that's, that's really true. I mean, it's, I get a front row seat. To, I think I have the best job in the world because I get to watch people come in off the street literally on you know, despair, no hope, and nine, 12 months later when we have these graduations, their family, their family's there, they're weeping, they're so thankful that their son or their husband or their their cousin or their best friend uh, is, has been returned to them in one piece in their whole, and they have a new life ahead of them. So, you know, we, as I said, we'll care for anybody that shows up. There's no obligation. We'll feed you. We'll give you a bed. We'll give you some clothes, a hot shower. But if you want more than that, it's here for you. We can help you change your life. And, and Mike, for the first time in our history, this when our building is complete this spring, we're going to have an emergency shelter on site here for women because it's been focused mainly on men for overnight, and we, we feed and clothe women, but we're going to actually be able to begin to do more for the women in our community who are suffering. You had a Mother's Day thing, if I'm not mistaken, a couple of years ago that I was involved with, which was where you went to the shelters. Yeah. Um, and Still all, do that. It was just epic. It was just, you know, women yeah. who, by way of not, you know, you almost think a lot of them wasn't just by choice, it was just by happenstance. This is a tough town. It's an expensive town. Yeah. It's easy to it fall is. through the cracks. Uh, women are particularly vulnerable. So these were women and their, and their children who were right. just bust in from all over the city from every shelter and fed and it was just it was a great thing folks if you're listening to this we should also mention that the new york rescue mission exists solely on the basis of donations uh they're not getting government money there's no big fat cats behind it it's pretty much donation only that's how this stuff works it's done out of the kindness and beneficence of the community and in this case i'm reaching out to the greater community around america the heritage radio network people that are listening nycrescue.org is the website we always say this when I did the live things on WR, a dollar, two dollars, five dollars, ten dollars, and everything you can afford. It's yep. a great story. They do great work. They save lives that otherwise would probably be lost to despair. Yep. And, and so I would just add to that to your listeners, you know, that obviously your listeners care about food. And uh, we have three chefs here, one of whom was on uh, the show called uh, Chopped. Uh, we featured there. Uh, they're really good. They're talented. Uh, they work. We have great uh, recipes and stuff. But we do have to buy the food, most of the food. $300,000 a year at least is the minimum food bill that we have. So uh, if you send a small donation in, you're going to be putting food in front of somebody, Super Bowl week, that's going to be special. 
Well, you're welcome back on this program anytime. This is an especially cold winter, uh, so okay. it's a topic that's really germane. Uh, it was a, really a pleasure to have started that Super Bowl event, uh, I don't know how many, six or seven years ago. Um, I, I haven't done that many great things in my life. This is something I'm really proud about. And thank you for the work you do day in and day out, your staff down there. Again, that's nycrescue.org, America's oldest mission. They've been doing nothing but the work that nobody else wants to do, great work, charitable work, since then, nonstop, and they're growing. Uh, thanks so much, Craig Mize, Executive Director. And have a great Super Bowl week. Thanks so much. Thank you. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Hey, thank you. Folks, again, that's nycrescue.org. If you have uh, you know, anything in the kindness of your heart, they really appreciate it. This is uh, a donation well spent. Okay. Catch your breath, Mike. You're doing radio. Now slow down. <laughs> Remember Radio 101? All right. I've got a guest now who, of all the years I've done radio, I've never had him on, and I can't understand why. Um, but I have talked about him often. If his ears were, were ringing, they would have rung hundreds of times because I'm a, a real wine guy as much as a food guy because to me the two go hand in hand. There is no dinner without wine. Um, and I, how do I describe Roger Dagorn? Well, I, I, and I mean this in the kindest of ways. I've always said he's the Yoda of sommeliers. And I say that because if you think of that character, Yoda was sort of this omniscient, beneficent, Little guy that just didn't have a bad bone in his body and knew everything. Well, Roger Dagorn, for those who don't know him, he's you know about five feet five, five feet six. Uh, you know, it looks like he could be an accountant in a midtown firm somewhere. He doesn't dress flashy, doesn't have tattoos, isn't doesn't have a beard down to his navel today. But you mentioned the name Roger Dagorn to sommeliers who have been around the block once or twice, and they bow. He is the man. Roger, welcome to Food Talk. Thank you, Michael. So Good great. To see you. No, so great to have you. Now, I should, by way of background, Roger and I worked together, and this will get me into a, another segue. You and I worked together on, you were on the floor as a sommelier at the Maurice restaurant. Right. All through the Park early Meridian. 80s. Parker Meridian Hotel. That's right. I was there. My wife was my girlfriend at the time. Uh, she was the pastry chef. I worked my way up quickly to be the sous chef. The chef was the amazing Christian Delouvrier, who's still practicing. Oh, yes. Still cooking up a storm. Folks, if you're living in and around New York and you like French food, there's a lot of little places opening up that I've talked about here before, like Les Falasses and Calliope, and of course Lafayette and Balthazar. But go to La Mangeoire. La Mangeoire's on the Upper East Side. I think it's 2nd Avenue or 3rd Avenue in the 50s. 2nd and 50, uh, 53rd Street. 2nd and 50s. There, there is not a better French kitchen in the city. Labsanth is great, but Christian's the man. I don't know how much longer he's going to be there. He's always talking about retiring at some point. It is phenomenal. And it's funny because that was my. I had started at the Four Seasons. I graduated the CIA in 82, got a job at the Four Seasons. And there was uh, something happened at the Maurice where um, I think your sous chef in Tornal got fired for stealing something one day. And my wife was doing her internship there. And she said, Mike, they're looking for people. So I had to, I had to switch my gig at the Four Seasons to get from dinner to lunch so I could work dinner at the Maurice. So I started working two jobs for about seven months until Christian offered me a sous chef job. So I, what a great way to come to New York. My first job was the Four Seasons restaurant, which was iconic. My second was with a young Christian de Louvrier at the Maurice. But to, to the best of your recollection, how many sommeliers were there working on the floor in New York at that time? Oh, there was, oh, perhaps half a dozen. Period. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about Lutes, La Cote Basque. Oh, not even Lutes. None of these restaurants had, I mean, Caravelle, the Four Seasons didn't have one. I know that for a no. fact. No. Danielle, Le Cirque at that point. I mean, nobody. So this was a job, and it's funny because, I mean, I kind of took it for granted. I'm a kid from Philly, and I'm like, yeah, sommeliers. He helps with the wine. But this, this was a career that almost didn't exist back then. Well, it was interesting because uh, 
oh, going back 20, 30 years ago, whenever I was called for jury duty, I was always the first person to be called, and uh, nobody understood why. People would gather around me and say, well, you know, uh, I'd be the first one called but never chosen. Uh, it was only until the last day uh, of my time there that the, uh, the, uh, the the lawyer again called me first person to be called says now here's a name you s- here's a profession that you find only on uh, crossword puzzles <laughs> <laughs> and how times have changed but we'll get oh, to yes. that in a minute how did you so your father was a chef i remember that because yes. at one point he needed to take a vacation and you asked me if i'd fill in for him at that point he was towards the end of his career and he was doing corporate chefing i think for a bank somewhere in midtown mm-hmm. one of those you know marriott or something and i, m- yeah. I remember meeting him charming yeah. guy wonderful man um how did you get into the sommelier business well you know it's interesting my f- uh, family had a uh, a restaurant a french restaurant which in those days was considered uh, a, a very good restaurant today in, in today's terms it was a typical french bistro um and uh, it it goes back oh it was around for a good 17 18 years and uh, uh they they focused on wine. They were probably the first restaurant in New York to do winemaker dinners, and they would do it on a regular basis. Every Thursday uh, evening would be a, a wine dinner, and they would fo- every month they would focus on a different region of France. And one month, of course, would be California because, of course, we had to uh, bow our hats to uh, the great uh, great Californian wines, uh, which, of course, today uh, are probably key to the wine industry uh, in America and uh, uh, French restaurants and uh, French wines are still popular but not nearly as they as much as they used to be uh, but in, in any case that's where I had my first exposure my father was a chef but he also was a sommelier he took a wine course uh, a sommelier course way back when and uh, of course he was first in his class and his partner my cousin um a couple of years later, took the same course, and he was first in his class. Mm-hmm. So when I graduated from college and uh, uh, had a degree in geology that became earth and, earth and environmental sciences, and all that was nice, but uh, difficult to find work, I always found work in the restaurant business. Mm-hmm. So I worked at my father's restaurant, and I th- said, "Well, you know, if you're going to uh, if you're going to uh, focus on wine." and be first in your class, I'm going to take the same class. And, of course, I had to be first, and I was. <laughs> and I had a higher score. And so that's my, that became my competitive nature, and it just uh, snowballed from there. Uh, I nece- wasn't necessarily so interested in wine initially, but I realized it's interesting. It's an interesting subject, and there's so much to learn, and you never stop learning. And that's what wine is about. Let's talk. I mean, so I go back. I, I, I'm guessing we're close to the same age. I'm probably a bit older than you. I, I, who knows? But um, hmm. so I, when, I doubt that. When I, start, when I started, in the, when I started in the business, you know, most of the great restaurants. There was some Italian food, but it was a little more casual. So the, really, the great restaurants in New York in the '70s and '80s, throughout the '80s, were French. It was the above four, you know, Lutes, La Cote Pas, La Caravelle, La Vendue, La Cine, mm-hmm. the Leilas uptown, and so. I my palate was kind of formed around two two regions, which is Bordeaux and Burgundy. Uh, mm-hmm. That's kind of what was; those were the the regions that ruled the roost back then. Um, let's talk about how far viticulture has 
come in the last 15 or 20 years outside of Bordeaux and Burgundy. Other regions of France, like Languedoc-Roussillon, throughout Italy, um, California, just Spain, and on and on and on. It's just remarkable to walk into wine shops these days and see the just the incredible bottles from $15 up that are just really wonderful, drinkable wines. Yeah. Well, wine has become international. Uh, and, of course, uh, the wines of France, uh, the wines of Italy, uh, but um, were the showcase. Uh, France had the reputation for quality. Italian wines at that time were had the reputation of quantity, right. but changed that around dramatically. Right. Uh, and other parts of the world started to come uh, through with great wines or have just becoming discovered. Wines of Spain, wines of, uh, well, Germany had been around a long time. Uh, but again, the wine world evolves so quickly. Uh, there are ups and there are downs. Uh, and uh, one little scandal can create a major disaster for a, a wine region. Uh, and uh, a movie can do major damage <laughs> to grape varieties. Yes, we are. Poor <laughs> Merlot. See. Oh, yes, uh, yes. And, uh, by the way, uh, uh, Chateau Petrus uh, is Merlot. Thank you. And uh, <laughs> uh, I guess that should be included in that movie. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's right. I mean, it's, when we think of Bordeaux varietals and right bank Bordeaux varietals, like people, people, hold on. Wait a second. Time out. <laughs> um, do, do these names mean anything to you? That's right. Petrus coming out at the top. Um, talk a bit about the, the, the job of a sommelier, because I think that it's for it, – it, I, I get to think we're becoming more accustomed to it because it's so – I mean, there's so many restaurants now that – I mean, you're not really serious if you don't have somebody on the floor that acts as a som or is a som. Um, but I think for people that aren't familiar with it, there's a bit of pretense and there's a bit of fear. And I think everyone has like a, a, a nightmare psalm story. And I'll tell you mine because it's kind of humorous. Uh, I w- when I was hosting the show at WOR, I lived in the West Village for most of those years. And I walked around all the time when I was off air, uh, just how I am. And I would walk past the Waverly Inn all the time. John DeLucy was the chef. He knew me from TV and radio. And he kept saying, you've got to come in, you got to come in, you got to in. like, dude, Waverly Inn is, you know, it's not my hang. It's Graydon Carter. It's the, it's the A-list of celebrities. But to be nice, I came in one night with a friend. Uh, she does not drink much, usually a glass of champagne, and that's it. So good, you know, cheap date, wonderful. And I, I said, you know, I know I'm not going to get comped. So I'll order a couple of things. You send something out. And he says, I'm going to send out the lamb. He was famous for it. So the sommelier came over to the table, and I had a Negroni, like I always do before dinner. And he said, what do you drink? I said, you know, she doesn't drink at all. A glass of champagne will be fine. I'll have a glass of Bordeaux. I kind of like Bordeaux and lamb, just, I don't know why, old school. Mm-hmm. And he holds up the wine list, and he says, well, why don't you try this? And I, I don't have my glasses on. It's three feet away. And I said, what is it? So it's a half bottle. I said, well, all right, so it's a couple of glasses. That's fine. Yeah. We get the bill. At the end of the meal, and it was four hundred and twenty dollars. <laughs> it was uh, it was uh, a split of Petrus, and oh, I just remember thinking, "What the f- you know? What did you do? I asked you for a glass of wine, a glass of wine, which gives you some indication of what I want to spend, which is kind of like one of the little things you're looking for. You know, you upsell me to a half a bottle of something that it's ridiculous, and I just remember thinking, this." Is you know I'll never come back here again, and if I ever see you on the street again, I'm going to kick you in the shins. Um, <laughs> but the, but the truth is, talk about what a psalm does because you've I've you've I remember you at Chanterelle, you were my psalm at the obviously on the mirrors through the floor. What's your interaction with the customer? How do you work that as a sherpa? How do you work that? What do you feel that your quote job or mission is? Well, my, uh, as a sommelier in every place I've worked, uh, I didn't work on commission. 
<laughs> I, I, it, it, my, uh, the, and I didn't like the idea. Uh, I worked for the house, and yes, but I also worked for the consumer. And working for the consumer helps the house. Uh, so I'm there to uh, suggest a wine that will work with the food. And if I recommend a good, reasonably priced wine uh, for the food, uh, hey, you may have a second glass. Um, it's better than selling a uh, high-priced wine that you have to remember uh, what makes the price is its rarity oftentimes more than its quality. Uh, and so you don't know that. The, the, uh, the, the consumer doesn't always understand that. Uh, there's plenty of good wines out there that uh, are not expensive. And the reason why they're not expensive is because they're not, uh, uh, the profits don't go into uh, 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 marketing. They go into putting it back into the vineyards and the winemaking. Uh, and these are the really interesting wines. And oftentimes people don't know about them because, okay, they're not marketed. Okay, they're not marketed. And, uh, and they're better, generally better. And sometimes the smaller producers, you know, they're, they're struggling. But they have passion right. in what they do, and that's what the wine world is about. It's about passion. Yeah, you visit, you visit these vineyards, you visit the vineyard oh, law, yeah. and a lot of these times, these men and women, you visit them at the end of the summer towards crushing, they've got dirt under their fingernails and calluses. Calluses and, in their hands. Calluses. <laughs> I mean, literally, I've seen it so many times, and dirt encrusted under their fingernails, and their lips are purple. This is what they live for. This is not, no one's getting rich off of this. They, their mission is to make try and make good wine every single year, which is almost like alchemy to me, because you think about all of the things that could go wrong f- from the spring to the, fr- from the fruit <laughs> set, to the bud, to the rain, to no rain, to too much rain, to all the way through harvest, the whole thing's a complete yeah. disaster waiting to happen, right? Mm-hmm. I, I, I honestly, I mean, I, I like it. As I say, uh, if you want to ha- make a small fortune in the wine industry, start off with a big fortune. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. Uh, so t- on that subject of Smaller regions. So we're lucky as so lucky as consumer these days. America is pretty much the number one target market for most for most viticulture because we are one of the few yeah. places where we're increasing our per capita consumption. I see a, like a generational shift. Uh, of course, part of that generational shift is where because I'm on the old end of the equation. Damn, that happened. But you know, I'm at the end all the time, and I see these kids in their late twenties, barely thirty, who are so savvy, who can look at these wine lists, two new varietals that I learned about two or three years ago, if then. Um, and and wine stores that are the same sort of thing. I've got a wine store in New York called September Wines, a little corner store, Lower East Side. And uh, I go in, I tell them what I'm making for dinner, what what it, what the flavors are, how it's going to be prepared, my price range. They've gotten to know what I like, and invariably they find me some great bottle of wine for eighteen to twenty four dollars, um, uh, mostly old world. But talk a little bit about what you see in terms of generational like kids today drinking wine because you're on the floor where you're working now we should talk about this by the way you you were chanterelle for many many years yep. great restaurant karen david Waltock, 16 years new york legacy so sad to have seen that go down uh then you were with michael lamonico yep. at porterhouse for a for while three and a half years a wonderful experience michael's a great great guy sure world-class guy great mm-hmm. guy all around new, new york story um Brooklyn boy, a great kid, great chef, and I love that, love that mm-hmm. restaurant. And you are where today? I'm uh, uh, with a, a, a restaurant group. It's called One Five Hospitality, uh, which is based out of uh, Tocqueville, uh, but it also now includes 15 East, their Japanese restaurant, 
the original location of Tocqueville, and it also includes the fourth uh, and single, S-I-N-G-L, for single uh, vineyard wines in the Cruvenet and single malt scotches in a uh, 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 bar lounge in the uh, the new Union Square uh, Hyatt Hotel. Just steps off 14th Street. I have yeah. not been to that. I can tell you that Tocqueville is one of the jewels in the city. Marco is the chef. Marco Moriera is a wonderful, wonderful chef. His wife's usually on the floor. Yep. Um, it's just a jewel of a restaurant. And yeah. 15 East is, is on everybody's short list of really one of the top 10 um, Japanese sushi sashimi restaurants in the city. Mm-hmm. Um we're going, to, we're going to change subjects just for one minute because if we're going to talk about sushi sashimi, I didn't let you answer <laughs> the last question I asked. I have, someday I'll figure out how to do interviews. Um, but I remember the late 90s, Chanterelle, tasting menu. Uh, you were I, – I, I always do this with tasting menus. Chef can send out whatever they want. I have no allergies. There's nothing I don't like. And whoever is the psalm on the floor can pair wines because who would know better what's going to work with the chef's food? Although I don't need to look That's at the right. wine list. I don't know what's coming next. I'm in your hands. So just give me a bill when I'm done. And at some point, you paired sake with something. Might have been chicken. Might have been pork. I don't even remember. And I just remember thinking, really? You were one of the pioneers of Western guys, of sommeliers, to start pouring sake as part of a wine program in a non-Japanese restaurant. Yeah. How did that happen? Well, I had always been curious about sake, uh, but I was always disappointed in the sake, the quality of the sake that I was tasting uh, in, in the well, se- 70s, 80s, 90s. But it was, uh, I guess, uh, early in the mid-90s, 1990s, uh, I had gone to a private tasting for uh, what they call uh, jizakis or small local sake producers and uh, most of the sakis that were available were large producers just like having California jug wine well this was the Japanese version for sake and uh, in this case there were about 30 different sake 30 plus different sakis and they were all small producers handcrafted sakis and all generally in the uh, Junmai Ginjo Junmai Daiginjo uh, quality level, uh, where the rice is milled down to below f- 60 and 50 percent. It's original size, getting close to the kernel with the starches and where the flavor is. And uh, these sakis generally had less of a ricey aroma to them and a much more floral and fruity aroma to them. And I thought at that point, when I tasted through these, uh, I could see an affinity to certain grape varieties. And I said, hey, you know, I can pair these with some uh, dishes that David Waltuck uh, was creating and uh, th- at that time he had two menus that changed every month. It would be a taste, uh, three course tasting menu and the six course mm-hmm. tasting menu. And with the, uh, the six course tasting menu, of course, I would pair wines with each course for those who wanted, uh, wanted that. Uh, and I figured, well, invariably, one, cor- one course can be paired with sake. And I used to do a lot of experimenting with that. And uh, it became natural. After a while, I knew what worked. And uh, and this was Western cuisine, but, of course, David's cuisine was uh, kind of eclectic, too. So it had a lot of Asian touches to it, yeah. uh, a lot of Mediterranean, Mediterranean touches. I, he dealt with everything and, uh, and did it well. And uh, it was a challenge. And it was a challenge to find wines that were of the quality to stand up to those dishes. And... It didn't just work with wine. It also worked with sake. Yeah. And uh, well, that was, that was the first time I'd seen it, and it's funny because I'm seeing it now on menus, and I always go back to thinking, 
man, Dagorn was on that 16, 17 years ago. <laughs> Talk to us, just without, without getting too geeked out, but I don't think most people understand how sake is made. And it's relatively straightforward. So we're starting with a rice that's specifically grown to become sake. This isn't rice that's going to become something else. You're not going and buying a bag of rice that you're going to mix. Well, you can make sake with normal rice. Okay. Uh, but uh, the high-end sakes are made by what they call uh, sake rice. Right. Uh, uh, and what this is, these are long-grain rice where the starch is concentrated in the center. And normal rice is milled down to about 92% cereal size so that you can cook with it. And the, uh, the starch is throughout the, the grain. But uh, uh, sake rice, it's concentrated in the center. So it's milled so, finer and finer right. and the finer. The more it's milled, the, uh, the more of the lipids and the oils and the proteins are, are removed, and it's more starch. And that's where the, the core of making quality sake comes from. And as you get, the closer you get, it gets harder and takes longer, and it's a more expensive process to make. Therefore, sake can be expensive. Um, but the process is simple. Once it's milled, uh, and the the uh, the rest goes for feeding cattle or making rice crackers, which is interesting. But uh, they take the rice and they uh, steam it. They take ten percent and they steam it and they put it into a special room and they inoculate it with an enzyme and it converts slowly converts from starch to sugar. It becomes uh, translucent from uh, white stage to a translucent stage. Then they take another 10% and they add a, a, a special yeast concentrate. And then that's mixed with this uh, uh, koji rice, which is uh, the uh, sacrificed rice. And then you get a process called multiple parallel fermentation where the, the um, rice, the starch becomes sugar and the sugar becomes alcohol side by side. And the process takes about a month. And it, it's uh, it's washed very very carefully by the toji master, and, uh, and and then it's uh, uh, it can uh, it can be pasteurized or it could be unpasteurized. It could be namasaki, which uh, is a draft sake basically. And just like the B, uh, BATF says that uh, wine is a uh, is a is a is a fermented grape juice, they call sake uh, a rice wine. But actually, rice uh, sake is more like beer because it's a starch that's converting to uh, rice and uh, to sugar and sugar converting to alcohol. Right, versus wine where it's the sugar's naturally present in the fruit. Exactly. Some wines, the yeast is naturally present on the outside yeah. if they haven't been spraying. Yeah. And it's just, you crush grapes, you're going to end up with wine yeah. naturally before it turns to vinegar at some point. Exactly. So there are many different styles of uh, sake. And uh, it all depends on... The water depends on the rice. It depends on the yeast. It right. depends on uh, so many factors. Right. The land and and so uh, the diversity is great. Unfortunately, the the sake industry in Japan has dwindled dramatically in the last hundred years, from uh, over ten thousand different breweries to now less than twelve hundred uh, breweries. And but what's coming out of it is that. There's less sake, but much higher quality. 
Um, yeah, and you're seeing yeah. it here. You're seeing it here in the states. There's a wonderful, relatively new restaurant down by me on Ludlow Orchard called Sake Mai. That's great. That has a great chef in it and mm-hmm. a really nice sake list. And I love it. And some of the some of the good uh, ramen places will have sake. That's great. Anyway, thanks for you for really being one of the pioneers and sort of bringing that into the Western kitchen. My pleasure. Sir. And dining room. <laughs> now, so let's talk about my other question, which I didn't even let you answer. And you must notice this because you're on the floor. Do, is it just my imagination? As we because we're getting older, but. Aren't these younger? And I'm going to call them kids. Sorry, if you're if you're under 32, and why would you're a kid? But these kids who are sort of late 20s and 30s who use must see on the floor all the time. Yeah. It's like a new generation that are just totally wine geeks, like wine yeah. knowledgeable. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, I see them all the time, and many of them are going through the uh, the uh, Master Sommelier program, and it's become a, a cult. It's, uh, there, in fact, there's a new movie out. I haven't even seen it yet yeah. called Psalm. It's all about uh, how to become a master sommelier, and it's uh, it's it's a hard process. It's I ridiculous. went through, I went through it, and uh, thank God I don't have to do it again. Because <laughs> <laughs> a lot of it's really esoteric. It's brutal. Oh, it is. But the thing is, that's the fun of it all, and it's challenging. And uh, everybody's of like mind, and so they they uh, they challenge each other. They throw questions back at each other, and they're constantly tasting and and. Uh, uh, it's a fascinating world. Yeah, it's funny. It's I was talking to Paul Greco a while back, and we were, we were talking about this thing about the, the psalms. Really, there weren't psalms on the floor in New York for most of the 90s. It's a, it's a new thing. And back then, you would go to a bar at a, at a good restaurant, and if you wanted wine by the glass, they probably had two choices for you, maybe three. And it would be mm-hmm. an oaky Chardonnay or an insipid Merlot from California. And that would be about it. And that's what people asked for. I'll have a Chardonnay or have a Merlot. That was your choice. I mean, yep. people are walking up to wine a bar at a restaurant and being offered... But an amazing palette of all sorts of wines. Well, I was just looking at the um, the uh, the uh, bar selection here at Roberta's, and I was just fascinated. In fact, in front of me, I, I ordered a, a glass of Montanilla. Uh, it's like the perfect uh, perfect starter wine uh, before a meal, and uh, it's going to lower my blood sugar and make me hungry and uh, that's <laughs> it's a perfect and uh, it's interesting because the choice now is eclectic uh, there's diversity uh, and they're all food wines and uh, people are looking for interesting they don't want the ordinary anymore uh, and there's so many great new wines out there uh, from all over not just from France or Italy you find great Greek wines Portuguese wines uh, wines from Chile and Argentina, South Africa, makes out, making some outstanding wines. Uh, you don't have to go very far. Uh, even uh, Long Island is finding, uh, coming up with some inter- interesting wines, too. Uh, Finger Lakes, uh, Ontario, uh, uh, Okanagan Valley in British Columbia. Uh, places that most people have no clue exist. I remember. Had, I remember. I, I had a friend of mine that was a, a two couple, a New York couple, both doctors, both brilliant. They ended up at University of Virginia, both practicing and teaching. And I would go visit them in Charlottesville. And I remember coming across these reds. I forget what the varietals were. Forgive me. I should know that, but whatever. These wonderful world class wines coming from Virginia. Yep. I was like, what is this? I mm-hmm. had no idea that was serious viticulture taking place. Well, there's wine being made in 50 states. Yeah. In Alaska, the grapes are harv- are brought in to be made into into wine, but still, it's 50 states. <laughs> yeah. So, so, 
a wine that sort of came up on the radar that's a funny wine-producing region, the de Jura. I mean, yes. that's one of these, like, screwball, 1% of French production, I think, is from yeah. Jura. A funny style of wine. You get those Vergeon, those almost oxidized kind of wine. Talk a bit about the wines from that region, because I find them so interesting as food pairing. Well, they're, they're uh, well, they make white wine and red wine. Right. And the grape varieties are indigenous, which is unique. Uh, the wine that you're talking about, uh, the Vangeon, uh, etc., uh, are made from a grape variety called Savagnin, which is a distant co- uh, cousin to Chardonnay. Uh, but what it is, it's made a little bit like sherry. Uh, in, in effect, they're uh, fermented in barrels, uh, about two-thirds full, and uh, uh, as they're going through the process, sometimes they form a little yeast layer on top, uh, which maintains this little freshness uh, in the wines and, uh, below the yeast, f- the floor, if you want to call it. Uh, and so it takes on that little nutty aroma. Um, and if it loses the floor, it takes on more uh, almondy aromas, uh, just like an amontillado, if you like. But this is the character of the wine. It's dry. It's different. Uh, I I, actually, it's not just dry; it's bone dry. Bone dry, austere. Bone dry. I, yes, I remember very the much very so. first time I had it. I, I thought it was a bad bottle. I thought it was Madeira. I thought this no, is no, this no. is this. The color was wrong. The nose was wrong. I'm like, there's something wrong with this. And the, whoever it was was really kind. They're like. Sir, actually, this is the style of the production. Yes. It's slightly yeah. oxidized. <laughs> it will seem Madeira. Well, uh, it's going to work very well with the, with the blue cheese that you have next definitely. to you. <laughs> well, I, I actually have a, a, a Sauvignon on my list from the Jura at Tocqueville, and uh, I always preface it to the customer. This is a unique wine. It isn't to everybody's taste, but it is the way it should be. And then I have them taste it first, and some people say, Oh, it's exactly what I'm looking for. And then you have the others say, no, 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 I really don't like this. Well, that's fine. Right. Uh, and it's good if we can do it by the glass. That's, that's, that's ideal. Uh, if it's done by the glass, then it becomes a, a financial nightmare. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. What do you do with this bottle? Uh, that's right. But uh, uh, ones like that, they do not go to waste. Uh, they can be sold by the glass to to customers who are just looking for just that type of wine. And th- so it, it's it's southeast of Burgundy. It's tiny, tiny, tiny. Arbois, talk about this. This is another one I've had recently that I just kind of fell in love with. It's a strange, unusual, had this great acidity, this great minerality to it. Uh, paired Whatever I was having that night paired really well. Talk about this. This is another – I think the one I had was – I actually wrote the label down. It was a Jenny and Francois bio-organic, which is another discussion mm-hmm. we'll have. But this is another like kind of funky little area. Yeah. Well, there's – again, it's, uh, these are uh, – uh, it's a wine region on the foothills of the Jura. And uh, – uh, it goes well with the local cheeses. They're they're white and they're red, and uh, they're uh, uh, they have a cult following, uh, and yet not many people know about them. But you know, uh, they're there, and they they they're they're worth. Worth looking into. Oh, I found it. With this. I remember getting this wine, and then I, I don't usually do this, but I liked it so much. I took a picture of the label with my cell phone and went home and Googled it. And of course, Jenny and Francois, you know, is an importer that prides themselves of just everything they do is bio and or, bio organic. Um, husband and wife, seven acres, <laughs> two years on the lees. I mean, it was sort of no wonder. Like, duh, where can I find this this bottle of wine? Um, yeah. You know, a region that I I've kind of fell in love with in, in the mid two thousands. 
In 2005, I was there filming and working kind of with them to promote the wine. And what a change they've made is the Beaujolais Cruz. Ah. I mean, these are wines that, I mean, we all think of Beaujolais. We think, I mean, in a way, thank God for George Duboeuf because he was a, 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 a really a ambassador for the region when no one was drinking Beaujolais. Of course, Beaujolais Nouveau is a whole other story. I would rather not talk about that, but it raises money quickly for the Vigneron. But the Beaujolais Cruz, which are the specific, is it 10 or 11? 10. 10. Ten crews, and to have that, you have to just come from the region, and you're seeing... It's the northern third of the uh, Beaujolais region, which is a hillier uh, region. The, uh, it's, it's granitic soil, uh, whereas the southern part of Beaujolais is pretty much sandy soil. Now, the uh, hilly soil, uh, the southern exposure has, gets much more sun, and because of that, they, are, uh, they get naturally a little, more, a little higher alcohol. And... Yes, still by uh, the, the process of carbonic maceration is found in the uh, in the ten crews, but less. Uh, more of the wines that are made traditional method uh, are found in the uh, in the ten crew, especially the uh, three major ones such as Moulin Avant, Morgon, and uh, Julianas. Uh, and so they do have they have potential to age a little bit longer, eight to twelve years, uh, and even more. Uh, in certain hands, uh, the wines Gamay grape is generally considered such a one-dimensional grape variety, but it can t- take on character with age and uh, again done by made by the traditional method as opposed to carbonic maceration, which generally generates uh, a lively, fresh uh, uh, strawberry, right. bubble gum aroma, right. bananas, but. It doesn't necessarily have to be just that. It can be more than that. And it goes great with the local cuisine, especially from around Lyon and uh, the, the Bouchon, the, the, those bistros. They're, they, they're ideal for Beaujolais. Yeah. I want to get out of France, but one more quick question. Uh, Loire Valley. I've kind of fallen in love with the Loire Valley. Uh-huh. And, again, and with France, you sort of need this decoder ring. You know, you, you're drinking... Uh, um, because they don't let, I mean in America we list varietals on the label in France yes. they don't so if, in, if you're in Bordeaux you're probably drinking Cabernet Sauvignon Cabernet Franc Merlot Petit Verdot in some blend if you're in Burgundy it's all Pinot Noir if you're in Beaujolais it's all Gamay but then you get a Cab Franc and you, you know it can be anything it, it, it's not called Cab Franc out of Loire Valley talk about Loire Cab- Valley because yeah. it's really it, it, it's some wonderful grape varietals oh yes and you have four distinct regions ah. uh, upper Loire Valley you have the Central Valley which is part of the Paris Basin, so it's chalky soil or uh, tufo, which they call uh, there. And then there you find mostly uh, mostly Sauvignon Blanc. And uh, therefore you have Sancerre, you have uh, 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 Ruy and Puy Fumé. Uh, there is a little, uh, uh, there's a little bit of red wine uh, and rosé made from Pinot Noir. And then you, as you go further down river, you uh, come to the region of, uh, of uh, the Touraine, uh, around the city of Tours, and here it's still uh, part of the Paris Basin, and here you find more Chenin Blanc uh, in appellations such as Vouvray and Montlouis, and uh, and a little bit now you're finding uh, red wine from Cabernet Franc, locally known as Cabernet Boucher, mm. and uh, in appellations such as uh, Chinon and uh, Bourgogne, and Saint-Nicolas de Bourgogne, and then across uh, the uh, Paris Basin line, you get into the Anjou-Saumur region, and then you get some ec- really eclectic uh, wines, again, oftentimes from Chenin Blanc, uh, in such appellations as Savonnière and Coteau de Lyon. They can be dry, off-dry, sweet, right. sparkling, right. Uh, exceptional wines, but tiny, tiny productions, and, uh, and again, 
more Cabernet Franc, such as uh, Anjou Saumur or Saumur Champigny, and Rosé becomes king there. Uh, and then lastly, uh, at the mouth of the uh, Loire, you have the region of Muscadet. Yeah. It's which great. is very, very interesting, too. And, of course, there's gros low for red uh, red wine, but, you know, it's, it's not serious, very serious wines, but who cares if you're having a, a nice hot dog? You know, it's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> and Muscadet is the classic oyster, oyster pairing. You know, Light uh, seafood, Muscadet, definitely. Classic, classic. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't drink enough, and you're going to help me school. We're going to get you back on this program at some point in the not-too-distant future, but I don't drink a lot of... New World wines, and I don't drink a lot of American wines. And part of it is, I don't know if my palate's just been informed by Italian, French, Spanish, Greek, German. We, we didn't even talk about Riesling today, which we could devote an entire show on. Sure. Um, but I, I think it's hard for me to find American wines that I like at my price point. My price point's like 18 to $25. Help me there. Help me explain why that is. And then maybe give me a few suggestions of things I should try. Well, uh... I think that uh, in California they're, they've uh, grown into this cult status uh, world of uh, high-end Cabernet uh, Sauvignon in Napa Valley. And granted, they are very good, but extremely expensive, very, very low yields, higher alcohol, uh, fruit bombs if you want. Uh, there are some really good producers, and there are some uh, many that are just average um, but you have to look at California as the new world so the wines are cleaner in a way they're fruitier fruit forward uh, they can be jammy um, and because of that movie I think uh, I forget the name of it but uh, Pinot Noir has become king there but if you take a look at a lot of the Pinot Noir from California they are jammy they are high in alcohol uh, they're ruby color uh, my goodness, I remember red burgundies, the true Pinot Noir. They're garnet color. Bur- they're lighter. They're, right? Really and, light. You can see that personality uh, right. important to a And they're, they're, uh, they're quite aromatic, but they're not alcoholic. Uh, and they, they don't necessarily taste the fruit. They taste more aromas of uh, truffles, uh, uh uh, yeah, the soil is leaves. Right. The French have that word "soubois," I think, yeah. with that that sub that wet kind of wet leaves, wet leaves right. that you get. That's what yeah. I'm getting all the time: mm-hmm. truffles, wet leaves, mushrooms, and, and especially the Cotonou. Uh, yes, the Cotonou. You get the uh, some cherries and and, and such. But uh, you have it's they're more austere, right. whereas restrained. in California, restraint, and right. whereas in New World, it's much more in your face, much more forward. But you know, you take other parts of the of the New World. You take, uh, for instance, Oregon. You take a look at uh, 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 the South Island of New Zealand, Central Otago, Marlborough, and even on North Island, Martinborough. Some of the Pinot Noir that are coming out of there are exceptional, and even Pinot Noir from Chile and Argentina mm. and Patagonia, they are remarkable. Mm. Okay. Um, so. Great wines can be can come from anywhere these days. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, a question that I've asked everyone that's always puzzled me, and you're the guy that's going to be probably the definitive answer on this because I've heard a lot of different stories. So I'm at a restaurant. I love Riesling. You know, if anyone knows Paul Greco, if you've ever eaten at Hearth, you're sort of 
<laughs> you don't have a lot of choice. But summer, it's been the summer of Riesling since Woodstock, I think, in, in, mm-hmm. in his mind. But, it, but they're great wines, and they're, uh, they're, they're wonderful value. They're misunderstood. I think a lot of people that are new to wine or, or maybe of a certain age that are older think of Riesling, of German wines, in, of being sweet, of having a lot of residual sugar. Yeah. There's a lot of Rieslings that are purposefully as, about as dry as they can get them. Oh, yeah. But where does petrol come from on the nose? So certain Rieslings I'm poured at a restaurant, and it's an imis- unmistakable. I swirl the glass. I'm not getting floral. I'm getting the same note that is referred to as petrol. Because yes. it sort of sells, smells a little like wet stone. Pe- I mean, not like gasoline petrol, but we know we, you and I know what we're talking about. Where it's not New that? Jersey. It's not. That's right. Where does that come from? It comes from, uh, I think, that pretty much the soil, uh, the uh, also the aging. The more it ages, it uh, develops, especially in Alsace. You do get it also in the Baden region. Um, but different uh, re- Riesling worlds uh, have different styles of Riesling. Uh, you get that apple freshness uh, and leaner, lighter, crisper style of Riesling in Germany, especially in the Mosul. You get a little bit earthier in the Rheingau. You get a very steely style of dry Riesling from Austria, mm. especially from mm. the Wachau region. Uh, but uh, Azaz is more known for Rieslings uh, because it's on the leeward side of the Vosges Mountains. More sun, um, uh, more exposure to the sun, more alcohol. And uh, still good acidity, so you have good ageability. And with age, you get the petrol aroma. But then you get these great, these great Australian uh, um, uh, rieslings now that are dry and very er age-worthy. That uh, you know, people think Australia Shiraz. Uh, if you want to think of sh- Australia in white wines, okay, Chardonnay maybe, or perhaps Semillon or Semillon, as they call it. Uh, but their Rieslings are really exceptional. Hmm. And, you know, people don't know them. They, 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 I don't know them. I'm no. making notes. Any producers you can think of? Uh, mm, mm. All right, I don't know. Uh, for one. Okay, I know yeah. that, I know that yeah. name. And there, there are quite a few others. <clears throat> All right, I'll ask my local wine merchant that I trust. Um, we're going to wrap it up in a couple of minutes, but just a, how do you weigh in on it? And I don't mean plus or minus. I, I, I've never done on TV or radio or anything I've ever done. I don't, I don't bash stuff. All other people do that. I'm just curious, and I'm always learning. And the cool thing is in our business is that we're always – there's some new varietal I haven't had. There's a new winemaker that's doing something I haven't had. <laughs> and there's been a real pronounced expansion in terms of promotion of organic and bio wines, two separate things, mm-hmm. um, to the point now where you can go into a wine store that has a reasonable size, and they'll probably have a shelf or a section devoted to bio-organic. Well, wh- what's your thought? What's your sense of them? I Because ha- they're very I, unique animals. Yeah, and some yeah. of these bottles are really funky. The term barnyard's coming to mind. They will change from glass to glass during the drinking of a bottle. Um, there's lots of elements that are surprising in there that you may think of almost as being off or being false, but they have kind of a vibrancy to them that's interesting in the right hands. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, talk to me about your, your take. I, I, I believe in biodynamics. Uh, I've talked to many great winemakers who are, who are leaning towards that direction if they're not already there. Uh, it, they, sometimes when you speak, when you listen to them, it's hard to understand. Uh, you take a, a person such as Barbara Shin out in Long Island, 
uh, she makes it much more uh, understandable. Basically, it's taking, uh, going back to old world winemaking practices, even though it's a process that, uh, viticultural philosophy that was started by Rudolf Steiner in the 1920s, uh, who didn't, I don't even think, drank wine. <laughs> uh, but uh, what it is is that they're taking old world techniques such as using horses instead of uh, tractors in the vineyards so that uh, the soil doesn't so get so compacted that it, it disrupts the biological uh, activity under underground, under the grass, so that uh, it, uh, it, it helps um, the, the roots be healthier. Um, the grapes are harvested by the cycles of the moon. Yes, the yeah. phases of the moon and the alignment of the stars. But a lot of, has, of that has to do with gravity. Uh, the uh, water table rises and lowers based on their location. And but that's not really new. That's uh, that's common. Uh, uh, you you talk to anybody who has any knowledge of geology mm-hmm. can tell you that. So, uh, but of course there are some odd. Uh, things such as adding cow manure in a cow's horn and yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, putting them sounds in more superstition. Than well, yeah, you know there has to be something uh, they have to, um, I guess, sell. <laughs> but I, to my mind, though, uh, I find that in the right hands, the wines, the roots are actually healthier. Uh, in other words, what would happen is that a great winemaker will can still make great wines in off vintages. Uh, it's attention to detail, and because so much of winemaking is, it, it's it's growing healthy grapes. It's pre-crush. Yeah. It's almost done by the time you're by the time you're at the crush. It's mm-hmm. done. It's decided. Yeah. It's like a chef would say: seventy-five percent, eighty percent of what I do is what is buying good ingredients. I can't turn junk into your good meal. I can get great stuff and tweak it. And that's the same thing with winemaking. They're given yeah. that season to get the best fruit they can, the healthiest fruit they can, the, the limit the yield to yeah. the point where they want it. It's having a healthy respect for your your product. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was. I had the pleasure of working with to promote for a while three or four years and travel there uh, the Languedoc-Roussillon region which has become you know what used to be the great wasteland it was post-Algeria yes. that's where France made all the shit right. and table wine that was just junk it was they planted in the wrong place it was times just, have changed wow <laughs> I mean that's a region so you're going from almost the Spanish border up to Montpellier from from the water up to the Pyrenees and it's, it's a really big place but be, and because of the, the, the way it's blessed with nature yeah. there's a lot of work organic and bio work being done yeah, down there. And from white wines to red wines to fortified wines yeah. to still wines, uh, just a lot of great wine all around. Roger Dagorn, folks, that's D-A-G-O-R. And Roger, what are your, just because I, I don't do this sort of stuff, so what are, your, what are the things behind your name? You're a master sommelier. I'm a master sommelier. I am a sake samurai, uh, which is kind of unique. Um, I was recently honored by... Um, Krug Champagne for Lifetime Achievement Award. Oh, so that's kind of nice. One hell of a house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You'll find him on the floor where again? At Tocqueville okay. Restaurant. Great restaurant, and 15th Street, just off 6th Avenue. Right, and 5th uh, Avenue. 5th yeah. Avenue, sorry. But, uh, I'm, I'm, and I'm doing the wine programs for all the restaurants in the group, and I also teach two days a week at New York City College of Technology. You do? Uh, yeah, New York City, City University. Col- say that one more time. For New, York, New York City College of Technology part of City University. And what's the name of the course? Uh, the wine course, uh, introductory and advanced. All right. So once again, Roger Dagorn, a pleasure to have you on the radio. I, I mention his name, and I'm telling you, Sam's 
everywhere bow. He it really is the Yoda of the business. I've had the pleasure of working with him on the floor of restaurants way back in the day when we were young, young, young men. <laughs> Seems like a lifetime. We're ago. still young. Thank you. Well, in, our, in our minds, anyway. Uh, yeah, Google his name, and if you're in and around New York, take his courses. He's one of the great wine educators. Uh, he's forgot more about wine than most of the supposed experts I think actually know. And a humbler man you'll never meet. Pleasure. Folks, you've been listening to Heritage Radio Network. I'm Mike Colomeco. The name of this show is Food Talk. Sometimes it's Wine Talk. I know that we get a lot of Facebook listeners who are listening to this show that are wine people from around the world. Thanks for listening. I don't always talk just about wine, but it's it, you can't have food and wine without it in my world. We'll be back next week. We've got a great show coming up. I should know who's on it, but I'm, I'm blanking out right now. Um, but um, I don't know. Listen for next week. You'll see. We'll post it on the website. Another great show coming up next week. We'll see you next week. Be well. Eat well often. Mike Calameco signing off. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.